Welcome and thank you for standing by. At this time, all participants are on a listen-only mode. During the question and answer session, please press star 1 on your phone. You will be asked to record your name and affiliation. Today's conference is being recorded. I will now like to turn the call over to Andrew Redman, Director of Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center. Sir, you may begin. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stacey. Uh, good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this morning's Wilson Center Ground Truth Briefing on the North American Leaders Summit. The Mexico Institute and the Canada Institute of the Wilson Center are delighted to welcome you this morning. We have two fantastic speakers, uh, two former ambassadors, Ambassador Tony Wayne and Ambassador David Jacobson. As the operator mentioned, uh, this is uh, intended to be an interactive session, so if you'd like to join the queue to ask a question, please press star 1 on your phone. Ambassador David Jacobson was U.S. Ambassador to Canada from 2009 to 2013. He had previously served as a Special Assistant to the President for Presidential Personnel. Uh, he is currently Vice Chair of the BMO Financial Group and is a member of the Canada Institute's Advisory Board. Ambassador Tony Wayne is a career ambassador who served as ambassador to Argentina and to Mexico from 2011 to 2015, as well as deputy ambassador to Afghanistan. He's currently a public policy fellow here at the Wilson Center and also the co-chair of the Mexico Institute's Advisory Board. Our moderator this morning is um, Mary Beth Sheridan, who is the Washington Post correspondent for Mexico and Central America, joining us from Mexico City this morning. So again, if you'd like to ask a question, it will be star one on your phone. And now I'm happy to hand it over to Mary Beth. Thank you so much, Andrew, and welcome uh, to all, uh, all of those attending. Um, I'd like to start out with a question for Ambassador Jacobson, I know that uh, you and Ambassador Wayne had a, a column, uh, I believe it was um, uh, two days ago, in the Globe and Mail, in uh, the Canadian newspaper, uh, in which you're talking about the summit. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, you've done a lot of thinking about this. What do you think the agenda of this uh, summit should include? Well, there, there are a lot of issues. There, there are two sets of issues, I guess three, because it's three countries. But, but, but there are the big picture issues. How can North America work together to uh, create greater safety and prosperity for the citizens in all three countries? How can we work on climate? How can we work on... Uh, reinforcing supply chains? How can we work on creating more good jobs and economic fairness across it? Those are sort of the bigger picture items. And then there are a series of what, at least on the Canadian side, and I think it's quite true in Mexico as well, are referred to as the irritants. Um, you know, the, the interests of the countries do not always exactly coincide. Um, and on the Canadian side, for example, there are two that come to mind and are talked about most often. Uh, one of them is 
the incentive that is part of the reconciliation bill that's pending before the Congress these days for uh, electric vehicles that are made in the United States. It's a $12,000 incentive, um, and the fear is that that will disrupt supply chains between the United States and Canada and Mexico. Uh, and the other is there's a pipeline, the, the so-called Line 5 pipeline, uh, under the Straits of Mackinac, uh, that carries about half of the energy to Quebec and Ontario and a good bit of the energy to Michigan. And the state of Michigan has been uh, actively trying to shut that down for some environmental reasons. And there are others. Um, but uh, it, it's an opportunity for the leaders uh, to try to clear away some of the brush and to talk about the, where they want this thing to go and how we can all do better. So, uh, you know, at a high level, I think that's what they're going to talk about. Great. Thank you so much. Um, Ambassador Wayne, uh, you have uh, certainly uh, either uh, participated in or certainly closely followed a number of these past um, uh, leaders' summits. Um, what's your sense, how does this one compare to the ones that occurred in, say, 2014 and 2016? Um, and, and, you know, did those have value? What's your sense of that? Thanks very much. Um, I, I think the, the, the challenge of these summits is, is not that there isn't a really big agenda. There's a tremendously important agenda. It's sustaining the agenda and the work between the three countries that can make a big difference. So if you look back to 2014 and 2016, it was a, there, were a there was a really rich set of agreements to work on competitiveness, on making it easier for travelers to go back and forth, on make, making it easier for all the the things that we make together to cross the border more securely and faster using the internet for filling out forms and doing other things, for planning together on, on transportation plans that link the borders to production centers, and then on things like innovation and, and even workforce development. How do you better skill workers that, because we have such interconnected industries, um, you know, plus Things that happened, bad things that happened, drug trafficking, human trafficking uh, across the continent, cybersecurity attacks that don't stop at the borders. So there, there, in both of those previous summits, there was a very rich agenda. All, much of that work then ended um, over the last four years. And so this is taking this up again in a very healthy way between the three countries. And what is very important is of course, that the, the three leaders get along together well and set a, a good relationship, but then within that, that they give an action agenda for their teams, their governments, to get back to work on these really important issues whereby learning from each other, building similar approaches, we can really help prosperity emerge more quickly as we come out of this pandemic and we can help address some of the big security issues across the continent, including things like climate security, environmental security. Mary Beth, if I could just add to what Tony just said, and I agree with all that. Um, one of the things that I learned in participating in North American Leader Summits and other summits is that 
one of the most important parts of it is the fact that it focuses the mind of the bureaucracies in the respective countries. You know, nothing focuses your mind like the fact that your boss is about to have a big meeting. And so it's a combination of the preparation before the meeting. What are the issues that we really ought to be thinking about, we ought to be working on? And there's a great deal of work. This doesn't just happen. Um, and then to Tony's point, after the meeting, there are deliverables. There are things that they agree that they're going to do, and now let's make sure that they do them. And so one of the really key points of this, yeah, they, they do make agreements, and yeah, they discuss things, and, and yeah, there are only some things that the leaders can decide, but a key point is it, it kept the rest of us and the entire of the, the governments in all three countries working both before and after, and, and uh, uh, to me, that perhaps was the most important part of it. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to remind uh, everybody listening that if you'd like to ask a question, please press star one to get into the queue. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, Ambassador Wayne, can you talk about a little bit, uh, there's going to be the bilateral uh, meetings of the presidents as well, and I'm curious what you expect to dominate the conversation uh, between President Biden and President López Obrador of Mexico? Well, over the past several months, the U.S. and Mexico have, have laid out a number of different ways to work on some of the most difficult issues between them. They've set up a new high-level economic dialogue that is starting to look at how you uh, reopen the border better, how you can build better supply chains in the U.S.-Mexico context, um, how you can work together also on uh, development in Central America and Southern Mexico to help keep uh, create jobs so migrants don't head north in the numbers they've been heading north. And then in the security area, they established a new high-level security dialogue, and that was really needed because U.S.-Mexico cooperation in public security and against crime had, had deteriorated over the last four years. And we were rem reminded of the terrible effects of that by the report that came out yesterday that over 100,000 Americans had died of drug overdoses in, in the past year, and the biggest portion of those from synthetic opioids, especially fentanyl, and most of that comes through Mexico into the United States. So there's a, a dire need for better cooperation, and that includes on the Mexican side where these, uh, cross, these cross-border organized crime groups are creating all sorts of violence and corruption and deaths in Mexico. So there's a common interest to work on that. Uh, so you're going to see a cluster of economic issues, and you're going to see a cluster of what we might call security-related issues. Um, and I, I think that that calls for a rich agenda. And then, as, uh, as David mentioned, there are some issues of difference also, and we'll see how these come up. Uh, as they as they go forward. Oh, and let me add, add the one other area that I think we're going to see in both bilateral meetings but also in the trilateral meeting is actually health. And one of the interesting things is to look back and see that the leaders had 
agreed in the previous NAL summits to make health a prime area of cooperation going forward, and that didn't continue. So right now, there's a great opportunity to deepen further that work to support coming out of the, of the COVID and prepare for any future pandemics between the three countries. Really important thing to talk about. Thank you. Um, Ambassador Jacobson, can you talk about what you expect to come up in the meeting with Prime Minister Trudeau? I know you uh, moderated a panel yesterday with him. Uh, can you share some of your takeaways from that? Yeah, well, um, I, I think my first takeaway from it was that your job of asking the questions is harder than it looks. Um, but uh, be that as it may. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of two... two uh, categories, as Tony said. One of them are the opportunities that the United States and Canada face together. Uh, the Prime Minister talked at some length and with a great deal of knowledge about the opportunity that critical minerals uh, present to both countries and the strategic challenge that uh, uh, the the absence of mining and processing of critical minerals in North America presents uh, the reinforcement of supply chains and, and lessons that we've learned from COVID uh, about the, the fragility of some of those supply chains and how can we uh, better prepare for the next crisis, whatever it may turn out to be. Uh, how we collectively use the conversion to renewable energy not as an anchor to our economic prosperity, but as a, an engine for the creation of, of jobs and, and economic prosperity. Um, how to create good middle-class jobs and to promote greater economic fairness. Those are the big picture items. And then, as I said, there are these the so-called irritants, uh, I believe Condoleezza Rice uh, in a prior administration referred to them as the condominium issues, uh, the, the kinds of issues that get raised at a condominium meeting. Uh, they're a lot more important than that. But, but for example, uh, this uh, incentive for Amer U.S.-made uh, electric vehicles, uh, the Line 5 pipeline, pipelines historically, um, there will be others. But my sense from listening to the Prime Minister yesterday is that his focus is going to be much more on the opportunity side of things than it is uh, about the, uh, uh, the irritant side of things, although he is under some pressure to come home with some wins. Great. Thank you so much. Um, Ambassador Wayne, uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you look at the past summits, uh, compared to this one of the, of the so-called three amigos, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious about what are the possibilities for for reaching agreements. You know, you have a a, a different situation. The U.S. President Biden obviously uh, is is a post-Trump president. He has political realities uh, when it comes to things like migration that are, uh, you know real challenges for his administration. In Mexico, you have a president, uh, Lopez Obrador, who, uh, you know, has a quite different agenda from his predecessors. So, uh, you know, are they going to be able to achieve the same kinds of agreements that you 
uh, you talked about, uh, will this, will this uh, have the chance to be as successful as those past summits were? Well, we're, we're going to have to look to see what comes out to find out. But I think on the competitiveness agenda, that is the agenda of creating prosperity, there will be a lot of meeting of the minds. I think there will be widespread agreement that we should learn the lessons from the pandemic, what happened on the border, what happened on the supply chains, that we should work to incorporate those in positive ways going forward, just as, as how people and things cross our borders in a safer way. We, we clearly have to work together to better understand supply chains than any of the governments did ahead of time. Um, and then we also are, are looking at things that I think are shared between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada is how we help our workforce get the skills they need to be uh, effect, well employed and support industry going forward with the continued incorporation of new technologies um, in that process. So I think that there's a lot of meeting of the minds there. You are correct that migration is a very big issue and one that's very complex to, uh, to work on for both countries. Uh, but it's something you have to work on together. And so if you can complement that by having a number of win-win opportunities in the economic area, you know, that's very important. And I think it's, it's important to recognize that the most integrated industry in North America is the automobile industry. And that industry is likely to undergo significant seismic changes with the arrival of electric vehicles, autonomous driving, automation, ro robotics, and digitalization, um, new forms of, of car ownership and use. And so there are going to be a lot of changes in that industry, and the governments uh, really need to focus on that and to uh, work on those issues along with all the stakeholders from the three countries in that process. And one of the important things that make this, these relationships really complex is they're, they're really international and domestic at the same time. They touch people in all three countries. They can become domestic political controversies. Um, but if you get them right, they can be really beneficial for all three countries. And so I think if we look at the auto industry, for example, that, that's an area that the governments just have to work together on in conjunction with the private sector and other interested parties, which include states and cities where these these plants are or where new plants and investments are going to come up. And that's why such issues that David was mentioning about incentives for special investment in the United States are, are sensitive or the United States position on how you apply the rules in the USMCA as they relate to autos and vehicles, which is another area that the three countries are debating. Very Beth, you, you mentioned at the beginning of your question about kind of domestic politics. And, you know, whatever agreements are reached or discussions that are held are obviously influenced by the domestic politics in each of the three countries. And one of the important points and really kind of the key 
to all this is trade among the countries. And President Biden uh, does not have a lot of wiggle room at the moment in the Democratic Party. You know, as you know, he's trying to get a, a very large piece of social legislation through the Congress with all Democratic votes. And and I say this as a lifelong Democrat, the Democratic Party is not historically the party that is uh, that embraces with open arms free trade. Um, and so there are constraints, and I, I think the incentive for electric vehicles is an example of this. There are constraints that President Biden is operating under, particularly right now. You know, he, he can't do much of anything to lose even a single vote in the House or the Senate on anything. So I think he is going to have to be very, very careful about concessions he makes that might um, diminish some of his Democratic support. And I, I'm sure that there are similar uh, motivations in Canada and in Mexico. I know there are. If I might just add, that, that leads right into a discussion about the proposed energy and electricity reform in Mexico, which is a high priority for the president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, um, but has sparked very serious worries on the part of a number of American and Canadian companies that have invested heavily in Mexico's renewable energy sector and other parts of the energy sector that fear that their investments are going to be greatly undermined if this reform goes forward and the role of Mexico's state-owned electricity authorities is expanded. Um, so the president of Mexico has a priority that he believes in. There's a, a difference of perspective with their very important economic partners, especially in the private sector, um, but there's also a difference of conception of the role of the state in energy uh, that will need to be addressed and worked through. And, uh, Ambassador, how much do you think that will come up at the summit? How much, uh, you know, can the U.S. and Canada uh, uh, try to, you know, encourage some sorts of changes or modifications of that uh, Constitutional change. Uh, I mean, how much how much room is there for uh, you know some sort of uh, diplomacy or or uh, you know something that would alleviate some of those concerns? Well, I think there's always room for diplomacy. Be the uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're talking to two diplomats, <laughs> but. But I think there is room for discussion, and especially because these issues relate to what we do about the environment and climate. There is great interest across North America in having greener energy. And there's great opportunity in developing greener energy technologies going forward. And, and I think that relates to how you look at energy and what's the energy of the future and how you evolve and move our, all of our economies toward a, a greener, more renewable energy system. And that is a very legitimate discussion to have across the continent going forward. And I think that opens up a number of areas uh, for discussion and cooperation um, as you know, Mexico and the President of Mexico considers this proposal.
And plus, uh, I must, we also have to say there are a number of commitments in the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement um, that relate to things that could happen to uh, in, in both of these areas, in the auto area and in the energy area going forward. And so all three governments have made commitments to abide by those principles and those rules. Thank you. Um, I'd like to just remind those listening that if you would like to ask a question, if you could please press star one to get into the queue. Um, Ambassador Jacobson, uh, for uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, this is he's now had these summits with, uh, well, he, he had the summit with President Obama. There wasn't a similar mm-hmm. summit under uh, uh, President Trump, but of course he had dealings with him, and now he's uh, dealing with Biden. How different is Biden's relationship with Trudeau compared to, um, you know, the last two presidents? Well, I, I, I know less about his relationship with President Trump uh, than I do about his relationships with President Biden and President Obama. Uh, the relationship with President Trump was strained, um, as was the case with a number of our allies. But, but I, I will say this. Um, I, I remember very distinctly a state dinner that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau held for then-Vice President Biden. Uh, this was after President Trump had been elected, but before the end of President Obama and, President, and Vice President Biden's term. And I will tell you, I was there and, you know, talk to both of them. Uh, there is a fondness, a, a genuine fondness between the two of them, as there was uh, between President Obama and Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, they just get along well. Now, is, does that mean that they will sacrifice the interests of their countries? Of course not. But it certainly helps. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I can say that, that these are not strangers. Uh, they like each other. They will have cordial conversations. There will, I'm sure, be points in the conversation where one or the other will raise a point and the other will say, look, I I hear you and I wish I could help, but it's just not going to work for me. Uh, And then they'll move on. Uh, So it's it's a good and it's it's a strong relationship and it's a relationship uh, of long term. Thanks. And, and Ambassador Wayne, there's always a lot of uh, speculation, certainly in Mexico, about uh, President López Obrador's relationship with Biden. Uh, you know, uh, AMLO did manage to uh, forge a, a pretty good relationship with President Trump. There was a lot of thought early on in uh, AMLO's administration that uh, that he was cooler towards Biden. And I, I think there's um, a lot of thought that uh, that Mexico does have a, a very strong uh, card to play in the relationship in that it's been doing a lot of the migration enforcement, which is so important to the Biden administration. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm curious how you see, you know, do you, see, do you think it's true that AMLO has a sort of cooler relationship with Biden than he did with Trump? And sort of how, um, how do you see the dynamics given the huge importance of the migration issue uh, to the United States. 
Well, you're certainly right that the migration issue is hugely important, but so is the fact that Mexico sends 80% sells 80% of its exports to the United States. And it's it's a relationship that no president of Mexico can ignore, as we saw in the relationship between AMLO and President and Trump. Um, and I I think what we've seen since June in particular are a number of steps to find and create frameworks within which the two governments can work to to move forward. And that relates to this high-level economic dialogue, which had not had been discontinued under the Trump administration and is now back in, back in place. It has a whole range of really interesting things to do in it, um, a lot of which some relate to investing in people, as well as in, in making the changes that will bring investment to Mexico as well as the United States. Um, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, one of the really contentious issues during the Trump administration has been cooperation on public security. And so the two governments agreed to a framework and their officials are negotiating right now to try to forge a new framework and a, a new action agenda to deal with these really difficult and, and costly and harmful issues of cross-border crime, that there, where there's crime going in both directions. I think it's very important to remember that while drugs come to the United States, the profits from those drugs allow the criminal groups to buy all sorts of arms that they send back illegally to Mexico and to have the money they need to, to sustain themselves and to fuel corruption in Mexico. So there's a, a very serious interest in both governments in trying to find ways to do this. The other interesting thing is that the United States is by, is now the largest, by far the largest donor of COVID-19 vaccines to Mexico. And so Mexico has been making progress on COVID-19, and a lot of that is due to the availability of vaccines that have been donated by the United States. So there's been a lot of investment by both sides in this relationship, and, and as you mentioned, that includes the Mexicans cooperating with trying to manage the flows of migrants coming northward, and at the same time, working with the Biden administration to figure out how you can better address the root causes that, that are getting people to head out of their countries, and also to see if we can't develop some agreed norms among countries in the hemisphere for how you deal with, with migrants and refugees in, in more effective ways. And, and, and Mary Beth, um, yes. I, I would just say that, that while the issues between the United States and Canada and issues between the United States and Mexico may be different, that the, the, the structure of the relationship that, that Tony referred to with Mexico is the same with Canada. That in Canada, I, I think the two great issues that are there all the time and have been there from the beginning, um, have been one, keeping the country together, cohesive. There are historical, there are language, there are cultural challenges there that uh, arise from time to time, and the relationship with its neighbor, the United States. It is the only country that Canada borders on. 
Um, it sends about 75%, I think it is, of its exports to the United States. Uh, I, I remember I used to talk when I was the ambassador about the fact that every year, pre-COVID, uh, that Canadians spent, I believe the number was 44 million nights in Florida. Uh, you know, there, there just is an incredible relationship between the two countries. And while they may fuss around the edges on it, fundamentally, it is very, very important for the Canadians, Canadian people and the Canadian government to have a good relationship with the United States. Thanks so much, Ambassador. Um, I just wanted to remind callers again, if you'd like to uh, ask a question, please press star 1 to get into the queue. Uh, Ambassador Wayne, turning back to migration, um, there's been a lot of uh, certainly conversations between senior levels uh, of the U.S. and Mexican government about it. There's been a lot of uh, frustration, I think, on the part of the Mexican government, which had hoped to see a quicker plan on uh, dealing with the root causes in Central America and Southern Mexico. Uh, it, they're eager to see some sort of uh, program that would provide you know, jobs and kind of a quick cash infusion to some of these communities so that people didn't leave. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious, these are obviously, uh, when you talk about root causes, these are long-term problems that uh, you know, could take decades to solve. But, uh, you know, can we expect anything new today? Can we expect any real advances? Uh, uh, because, of course, this is such a, a major issue, uh, you know, a political problem, certainly for Biden. Uh, but like I said, the Mexicans feel like the U.S. is moving a bit slowly on uh, programs that would help keep people home. Well, Mary Beth, I think a lot of people are feeling that the desire that they wish they could ask more, act more quickly to solve these problems. But as you said, they aren't problems that are going to be solved quickly. If you're going to change the root causes, uh, you need to both spend money, but you need to spend money wisely, and you actually have to address the root causes. And, and as you know, the Biden administration has asked for a billion dollars a year as their plan to invest in the northern tier of um, Central America, and they're also really for the first time very openly going after bad governance in those countries because you can't invest in cha in getting industries to invest. You can't create the situations in which new jobs are going to be created um, if you don't have a good environment, if you have bad government, if you have a lot of corruption. And so they're trying to work on all those fronts simultaneously. And as you also know, that very sadly, the Trump administration cut off a number of programs that were USAID programs that were working very successfully uh, to address problems of crime and to start to create new possibilities for, uh, for jobs in different parts of those three countries. And the needs are really different in different parts, in the different countries and different parts of the countries. And the same thing in in southern Mexico, um, you're not going to be able to offer uh, new incentives to create investment there without first coming up with in, with projects that you think are going to attract the investment of private sector. If we're going to use our new DFC, uh, Development Finance Cooperation, which I think we will, it, it does take time 
to uh, to work on this. So, you know, I think there's a lot of good work going on, um, but it is going to be a, a, a medium and long-term effort. And in the interim, you have to have as, as good a cooperation as you can in managing these flows humanely um, with better practices and um, and and building that trust and confidence that's needed to get the pro the aid programs running and the investment, um, as I said, both in southern Mexico and in the northern tier of Central America. So we just have to be patient there. I'm I'm I would believe they're going to talk about migration today. I note that Canada was an important partner in the uh, efforts that were launched in 2014 and 2015 going forward to create some broader frameworks with the Central American countries and a number of other donors, not just the United States and Mexico, from around the world to help them. So I would hope that we can see that collaboration again going forward. Great. Thank you. Um, Ambassador Jacobson, can you talk a little more about uh, does Canada have concerns in this realm or are there ways in which uh, you know Canada uh, is is also looking to you know play more of a role in this issue well I, I think there are two sides to the Canadian perspective on this one is as Tony mentioned um, they view themselves as a country that can um, help the United States Mexico but help the United States uh, in trying to deal with some of the root causes of the problems in, in Central America. Uh, there are countries where Canada, for historical reasons, has, has better relations uh, than the United States does. Um, and so uh, they would try to be helpful there. But the other piece of this is Canada is a really big country with very few people relative to the size of the country. And so immigration is something that they are uh, very open to and very dependent on. And I don't remember the exact number that the prime minister said yesterday um, that this year Canada will accept as permanent residents, but it was a, I believe it's more than the United States will accept. Uh, that they seek political refugees from around the world. Uh, they seek people who want to come to Canada to, to build a new life. Um, and immigration is perceived very differently in Canada than it is in the United States. But the one other aspect I might answer uh, add to this is that one of the potential safety valve solutions that's being looked at in the United States is expanding our uh, temporary worker programs to include Central Americans. And Canada has a very successful temporary worker program with Mexico that has functioned, I, un I understand, extremely well for a number of years with, with Mexican workers coming up and working seasonally in Canada, going back to Mexico, and then coming back again the next year. And, and so I think Canada might have some also lessons to share in that area as the United States thinks through uh, possibly expanding 
that temporary work program to meet some of the labor needs in the U.S. And, and I would hope this might be an area where we could get some bipartisan agreement in the U.S. And, of course, that's one of the big challenges that the administration of President Biden has in dealing with this program is finding some areas where he can get bipartisan support for improving our immigration system, which has not had a major reform for over 20 years. And it, it really, it's in need of renovation and improvement. Great. Uh, thank you. Um, there's a mention, Ambassador, I believe you mentioned, uh, speaking about COVID, that the U.S. Uh, did provide a significant number of uh, doses to Mexico. Um, but the, the, the response to the epidemic, uh, there were also a lot of frictions. Obviously, the U.S. Uh, border with both countries was closed to non-essential travel for a long time. That was uh, really uh, a problem for Mexico and Canada. Uh, there were difficulties certainly earlier on in the pandemic. Uh, in both, both Canada and Mexico were concerned about getting access to vaccines. Um, what kind of steps can be taken now going forward to, uh, you know, create a more uh, uh, unified approach or to, it seems like this is not going to be the last pandemic. Do you, do you see uh, kind of new initiatives uh, or, or new uh, plans that will come out of the summit? Well, I certainly um, hope we'll come out with an agreement to, um, have a, a task force from the three countries look at the lessons that have been learned because there was a lot of mishandling by all three of the countries of this pandemic. And it seems they sort of forgot the previous working groups that they'd had trilaterally to deal with some of the earlier health crises that affected all three countries. So I, I hope, one, we can reestablish that cooperative framework and, two, have a a trinational working group that will try and, and pull best practices, lessons we should learn, and then put it in place so we have contingency plans should something like this happen again. David, over to you. Yeah, well, I, I very much agree with that. Um, and the, the one thing I will add, and, and I'm more knowledgeable about the northern border than the southern with respect to COVID, but Part of the problem was the complexity of the rules. There were different rules at land borders versus airports. There were different rules going north versus south. You needed one kind of test going in one direction and a different kind of test going in the other direction. And um, all of those things add up to making, even when the border is open, making it less likely that people and goods are going to move across. And, and one of the things that I think is important, um, and you know, quite frankly, we've seen this in the United States with respect to a number of rules, is the rules get so complex and, and they change so often uh, that people just throw up their hands. Uh, and so I think one of the goals of working together is to try to have a set of rules that are intelligible and are consistent. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, I just wanted to remind listeners, if you'd like to ask a question, uh, please press, press star 1 to get into the queue. Um, I, could I also uh, 
turn back to another one of the things we mentioned, which is the whole green energy agenda. Uh, certainly uh, in Mexico, that has receded as a priority, uh, the kind of priority that was in prior governments. Uh, there is a, a, a policy now of um, really expanding uh, investments in Pemex, in refineries. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, the Biden administration clearly has uh, a more aggressive um, climate program, uh, and my sense is Canada does as well. Um, how can you bring together these three countries, given that, uh, you know, they're to some extent going in different directions? Ambassador Wayne, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think the opportunity for them to talk today is, is a good step in in that direction. It's not unusual that there are differences of approaches between governments, but if we can engage and, and, and explore these uh, all the connections between these, I hope there's going to be progress that can be made. For example, going back to the auto industry, if you move to electric vehicles, um, you're going to have to have an abundant supply of electricity to make batteries. They use a lot of electricity to make batteries. And the companies that are going to invest are going to want both inex relatively inexpensive and relatively green electricity because their investors are putting a very high priority on a good, as they call it, ESG profile for the companies, good environmentally sound practices and investments. Um, and so that will affect where companies invest. And, you know, so Mexico really does need to think very seriously um, about what their energy profile is going to look like, including if it is green or not, and the future costs of that electricity going forward if they want to attract future investment. And, of course, this is not just true for auto industry. It's true for any manufacturers, any international manufacturers, are going to be increasingly facing that pressure to show that they're becoming greener. So I think that's an important topic to talk through uh, between the leaders and the governments and to work on over time. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I believe we have a question from Dante. Um, operator, if you could uh, open the line, please, to Dante. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Perfect. So I just wanted to ask um, a question um, uh, more broadly about Buy American provisions and specifically um, the effects with the electric vehicle tax credit. So I know this was kind of a contentious point that, that was brought up yesterday when uh, the Prime Minister uh, visited the Wilson Center. Um, but so I just wanted to, to know if, if maybe we can dive into um, what Canada's perspective and the U.S. or and Mexico's perspective is um, heading into the summit on, on how they want to approach um, that discussion regarding the electric vehicle tax credit and the Buy American provisions, both in the infrastructure plan and the upcoming proposed Build Back Better spending bill. Dante, um, do you, do you mind just identifying yourself? I believe you're a student, right? Yeah, sorry. I, I'm, I'm, my name's Dante, and I'm a student at George Washington University. Great, thank you. Uh, Dante, let me let me take a pass at that. Um, 
I think it's important to separate out two different concepts that are floating around here. One is the what what are, is generally referred to as the Buy America provisions in government procurement, um, and the other is these various incentives that favor domestic production on the private side. The, for example, the credit for uh, autos that are made, uh, electric vehicles that are made in the United States. On the first, and 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 I understand the the concern, certainly in Canada, uh, uh, on both of those. I am somewhat more sympathetic to the Buy America provisions in government procurement, where you're asking taxpayers in the United States to spend their hard-earned tax dollars to create jobs in one country or the other. And, you know, if you have a choice, let's try and, to the extent we can, get uh, things uh, or create jobs in the United States. On the other hand, um, you know, as Tony pointed out, the future of automobiles, one of the large, I guess, the largest, certainly largest manufacturing industry in the United States and in North America, um, is going in the direction of electric vehicles. And the United States, and I, and I say this not to help Canada or to help Mexico, but to help the United States, that for us to be successful in that transition, we are going to have to compete with the Japanese, we're going to have to compete with the Germans, we're going to have to compete with the Chinese. And to try to do that, tying our hands behind our backs and not being able to use the, the, the batteries, the components, the stuff that is used to make cars across North America is it, not only is it going to hurt Canada, not only is it going to hurt uh, Mexico, it's going to hurt the United States. Uh, and so I think that's a mistake. And, but I think it's important to keep these two kinds of so-called Buy America things, government procurement and interference with or, or preference in the marketplace for uh, private sales, uh, very separate. And just to add to David's comments, which I, which I agree with fully, under the new North American Trade Agreement, USMCA, or TAMEC as it's called in Mexico, there are different provisions for government procurement and for favoring certain national companies over companies from your other two partner countries. So we need to be very careful to abide by the letter of that new trade agreement also, which is so important for, in the United States, at least 12 million jobs that are supported by trade with both neighbors. Um, and if we want the other, our other two partners to abide by all the rules and provisions and commitments, we have to do the same thing. Great. Um, uh, I was wondering if the two ambassadors um, might provide some closing comments. Uh, Ambassador Jacobson, would you like to start first? And, and perhaps you can uh, leave us with an idea of what, what we should expect. What would, what would success look like if, uh, in, in the meeting today? Well, let me begin by saying I think the fact that there is a meeting is very important. 
that it it just sends the right message and unless things break down entirely, which I don't anticipate they will, sends the right message to the American people, to the Canadian people, to the Mexican people, that we're going to work together for the, the health and safety and prosperity of those of us who live in North America. So that that's where I would start. Uh, I do think it's important, certainly for uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, to come back with something. Uh, he'd like to come back, I think, with some sort of commitment on the electric vehicles. Um, I think that would be important for him. Uh, and he would like to come back with some sort of enhanced cooperation. One of the things that's very important to the Canadian people is the perception that their neighbor to the south, which is 10 times as large and and the economy is 10 times as great, that they care about them, that they work with them. Um, and, and so I, I do think that that's going to be important to him. And I suspect that he is going to come back with some things because it's not just because it's in the interest of Canada, it's because it's in the interest of the United States. So I'm looking forward to... Uh, uh, there isn't going to be a joint press conference, I understand. Uh, there was some talk of that at one point in time, but uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is going to have a press availability t- this evening at about 6 o'clock, uh, and I'm looking forward to what he has to say. Great. Ambassador Wayne, what your expectations and uh, thoughts, concluding thoughts? Well, I, what I think that we're going to see coming out of is a shared vision by the three leaders, and then setting up a process for their teams to work on the follow-up and to implement this going forward. Because these are these issues are really important for jobs in all three countries, security in all three countries. And all of us, all three countries, just suffer if the countries aren't trying to work through their differences and take advantage of these opportunities. Too sadly, historically, we've seen periods of cooperation and then periods of no action and cooperation and no action. So I I hope what we're going to see is the initiation of a period of real activity and hard work on what are really hard problems between the three countries. And so this can really be an important launch event, and I hope we're going to see that. Terrific. Um, Well, I wanted to thank everyone uh, for uh, participating in the Ground Truth Briefing about the summit, the North American Leaders Summit. Um, and I'd like to turn it over to Chris Sands, uh, the director of the Canada Institute, for a few final words. Thanks very much, Mary Beth. Um, really just come in to say thank you again uh, to Ambassador David Jacobson and to Ambassador Tony Wayne and, and also to you, uh, Mary Beth Sheridan from the Washington Post. This was a very impressive discussion. And I think the, the breadth of issues that you covered in an hour gives a sense of how important the meetings are and, and I think in a way why we have to get these things to be more routine. We have a sort of pent-up agenda here. We don't have to handle everything through summits like this, but I, I think in listening to both ambassadors, it, it just struck me that we really do get some value added out of out of meeting face-to-face. And in this era of Zoom meetings and teleconferences, uh, that's a good reminder. Um, 
So uh, from the Wilson Center, uh, great thanks to our speakers today. Great thanks to my partner in crime, my bookend, uh, Andrew Rudman, director of the Mexico Institute, and, uh, and hopefully the summit will live up to the expectations we've set here today. Thank you. That concludes today's conference. You may disconnect at this time.